first reading is taken from the first letter to the Thessalonians, <clears throat> chapter 2, starting in verse 17, which can be found on um, page 1187 in the Church Bibles. But, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we, were, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as well you know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. This is the word of the Lord. Continuing straight on. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Would you keep that Bible passage open before you? It's on page 1187. I've changed the title of our sermon today to the challenge and the joy of godly leadership. The challenge and the joy of godly leadership. And this is the third of our sermons on Paul's first letter to the Christians at Thessalonica. And he wrote it about A.D. 51 from Corinth. He'd had to flee Thessalonica by night with his companion Silas. And the local religious leaders, jealous about the converts he'd made, started a riot against him. And clearly the Christians faced persecution after he left. 
And the background to the passage before us today is that Paul had tried to return to Thessalonica, but circumstances had prevented it. And he was so concerned about them that eventually he sent Timothy, his co-worker, to check that they were still going on in the faith and to encourage them. Now, Paul doesn't have a good reputation amongst some today, to whom he appears harsh, cold, and unyielding. Yet, a look at this letter, and indeed others in the New Testament, reveal a very different personality. As we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul had come to love the Thessalonians so much that he was delighted to share with them not only the gospel, but his very life. And he described how gentle he was among them, like a mother caring for her little children, verse 7. And here in verse 11, we read about how he dealt with them as a father, encouraging, comforting, and urging them to lead lives worthy of God. What we have here is the language of parents. Parents who are separated from their children, who miss them dreadfully, and who become deeply anxious when they have no news of them. What an appropriate theme for Father's Day. For at the heart of this is the reminder that godly pastoral care in a church family is like parental love, committed and sacrificial both in time and energy. And I want to highlight this morning just four points. Paul shows us about godly leadership, and many of us are in leadership of some kind or another, whether as teacher in the children's church, leaders of small groups, or in any situation where we find ourselves with the spiritual care of others. So first of all, godly leaders have a deep affection for their people. Godly leaders have a deep affection for their people. Have a look at chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. We've touched on this already in the earlier verses of chapter 2. Paul left them very reluctantly. He was torn away from them for a short time. And the literal Greek meaning is that he was orphaned. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? But whilst they were out of sight, they were not out of his mind. And that's the meaning in verse 17 of in person, not in thought. He had an intense longing to see them. He made every effort again and again. He wanted them to know that his inability to return to them was not due to any indifference on his part. Rather, verse 18, it was a direct result of Satan's activity. Now, we don't know from what form that took, whether it was illness or a refusal of the authorities to let him travel. Whatever it was, Paul could see Satan's fingerprints all over it. And it was agony for him. Why? Because of their place in his affections. Verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. The crown was not a royal crown, but the winner's prize in the Greek games, a wreath, the only prize Paul valued was to see these Christians flourishing in their newfound faith. Isn't that moving? All the things he valued, this 
was the absolutely key one. John echoes a similar thought in his letter, the third letter, just verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, that is, converts or believers under his spiritual guidance, than to hear that my children follow the truth. Occasionally, one meets church leaders who really don't like people at all. They preach a sermon and they dash away before anyone can catch them. They are never available for other people. Or they may arrive at a place, stay for two or three years, and then off they go again. One South American missionary described this as the hummingbird syndrome. Listen to his words. The type of, this type, one type of Christian leader is known as the hummingbird. A quick visit to the flower to get what's on offer, and then they're off. They have radiant plumage and flashing brilliance, and arrive knowing how to do it all far better than the plodders. They can't perform tasks that less elegant animals can. They flit off to brighter flowers, telling all of their heroic moments, and undervalue the oxen that pull the carts of the kingdom to higher ground. Uh, the second type of Christian worker, he continued, we see is the trampoline variety. They use the church out in the sticks not to minister God's love to the poor, but their time here is used as a trampoline to get on in the ministry. They have no commitment to the poor, no respect for them. They come to teach the ignorant not to learn together with God's people. Solid building takes time. You have to get dirty and learn from those you came to teach. It demands long-term commitment, love, and respect. And this can only be worked out in an ongoing relationship where people can sense you are not going to be bouncing or flying off at the first sign of danger or drought. It's quite moving, isn't it? A very telling point. People deduce from such teachers that all they're interested in is their career. How different from Paul? Yes, he was torn away from them, but it was not his wish. He not only loved them, he told them he did, which is what family is all about. That's why it's very difficult for church leaders, and I'm speaking personally here, when people have to move away, even from St. Michael's. You get very fond of people, and then God takes them off, often even to another part of the world. Godly leaders have a deep affection for their people. Secondly, godly leaders will always be concerned for their people's spiritual welfare, always concerned for their people's spiritual welfare. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. He had two reasons for sending Timothy. First, to find out about their faith, and second, to strengthen and encourage them in that faith so no one would be unsettled by the difficulties they were facing. 
And Paul had clearly taught them wisely. You know quite well, he says in verse 3, that every Christian will meet trials and difficulties. In fact, every Christian is destined for them. There is none of the become a Christian and life will be a bowl of cherries philosophy here. That is exactly what Jesus taught, John 16. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't say, you might have trouble. He said, you will have trouble. How many Christians could have been saved a great deal of heartache if only they'd been told that at their conversion? For you see, when you become a Christian, you are no longer going with the flow. One of the moments of my life is I managed to catch a salmon. It's a beautiful thing. A salmon goes upstream. That shows you it's alive. If it floats with the current, it's dead. Blindly following everyone else is not what the Christian does. You take a 180-degree turn around in your life and you find you have an enemy in Satan and in the world which wants you to get with the program. It doesn't like the fact that we think there's another more important program, God's program. And if people haven't understood that, when tragedy hits, their faith may be shaken. They may begin to doubt God. The tempter will be whispering in their ear, God can't really love you. He wouldn't let this happen to you. Or how can you believe in the goodness of God when you're suffering like that, forgetting that God's own son, Jesus, faced immense cost and suffering? Why should we be immune? And Paul was therefore very keen to know that their faith had not been shaken by the persecution and difficulties that they'd faced. And note that word encourage, verse 2. Paul wanted them to be lifted up in their spirits, not defeated by their difficulties. He wanted them to be strong enough to face whatever was thrown at them. Godly leaders will always be concerned for their people's spiritual welfare. And so following on from that, number three, godly leaders will see to it that their people are well taught. Godly leaders will see to it that their people are well taught. Look again at the second half of verse three, Paul's words, you know quite well. It's clear from both the letters he wrote to them that Paul had taught the Thessalonians quite thoroughly. He taught them about the role of Satan, of spiritual warfare. For Satan is no amusing little cartoon figure with a forked tail, but a personal force of evil who is out to do battle with every Christian. But he was defeated by Jesus at the cross, and he need not have any power over us. We need to know how to deal with him. And another of the major doctrines which we rehearse every time we say the creed and remind ourselves is the fact that at the end of time, Jesus is coming again to judge the world to take his people to himself, to bring a final end to all that is evil. And that truth is mentioned in every chapter in this letter and twice in the passage before us. And in verse 19, Paul talks about how the Thessalonians will be his crown in which he will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Not if he comes, 
when he comes. And in chapter 3, verse 13, he prays that they will be blameless and holy in the presence of God when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And he says much more about it in chapters 4 and 5, but he doesn't argue the fact here. Evidently, the Thessalonians were well aware that Jesus would come again. And I'm reminded of the passage in Hebrews, which we studied before Easter, where the writer tells his readers in chapter 6, verse 1, that such things as the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment are elementary teachings. Clearly, the Thessalonians had grasped that. I wonder, though, how many churches teach such elementary things today. Godly leaders will see to it that their people are well taught. Back to Paul's narrative. If you look at chapter 3, verses 6 and onwards, you'll see that Paul's fears were unfounded. Timothy returned with good news, for despite everything, they were standing firm. Firm in the Lord, verse 8, and they were just as keen to see Paul as he was to see them. Here again is the parental voice, the joy that the family affection is mutual, the joy that they have learned well his lessons about living the Christian life. And this great news leads Paul to thanksgiving. Look at verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Do we remember to thank God for good news? Especially when people become Christians and grow in their faith. Are we rejoicing about the nine candidates who are being confirmed this evening? You know, I suppose in my day, you were confirmed. It was done. These, each of them, have chosen for themselves. One of the parents came up and said, you know, I didn't press him. He said he wanted to be confirmed. Isn't that wonderful? Teenagers and somebody a bit older, all wanting to be confirmed. Don't we rejoice about that? Standing up for Jesus. Isn't that terrific? It's so easy, isn't it, to say, thank you, Lord, and then moving on to the next thing without really pausing and basking in God's mercy and love to us and the prayer that he has answered. We rush on. Thank you, Lord. And then we dash on. No, no, pause. Just remember. Isn't that amazing? Here's my final point. Godly leaders pray faithfully and specifically for their people. Godly leaders pray faithfully and specifically for their people. Look at verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Paul tells them that he prays night and day, that is frequently for them, and he prays four specific things. I'm going to touch on them briefly. First, that he may supply what is lacking in their faith, verse 10. And we know from the rest of the letter that this includes matters of a moral and disciplinary nature, confusion about the timing and manner of Christ's return. He talks about these in chapters 4 and 5. In short, he longed to see them grow up as mature Christians, able to serve Christ really effectively. 
Second, he prayed that in order to do this, God the Father and the Lord Jesus, verse 11, would clear the way for him to come back to them. In other words, that Satan's attempts to block his path would be defeated. And we know from Acts chapter 20, when Paul returned for a further trip to Macedonia, that this prayer was answered, but some five years later. Third, he prayed that their love for each other, and note this, verse 12, for everyone else, would increase and overflow just as ours does for you. Last Wednesday night, a 21-year-old man, Dylan Roof, entered a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and after sitting through an hour-long Bible study, shot nine people dead, including the church's pastor. On Friday evening, BBC News showed the bail hearing for the young man, and he was on a video link from jail. And in the courtroom, a number of relatives of the dead were allowed to speak to him. And the BBC reporter was visibly moved as by, one by one they told him that they forgave him and they asked God to have mercy on his soul. Such forgiveness could only come from the supernatural hand of the Holy Spirit. It emphasizes how far-ranging the call to love and forgiveness is for the Christian. The effect it had on the BBC reporter shows what a testimony it is to the world when that kind of love and feeling is demonstrated. Nothing is more powerful than Christian love, which is why unity in a church is so key, because the love that binds people together from so many different backgrounds, personalities, races, and nations speaks volumes about the love of Jesus for a world, a world which is a broken world, a world which is a hurting and damaged world, and a world which tragically has rejected the love of Jesus. Paul prayed that the love they'd already shown would increase and overflow to everyone. And finally, Paul prayed they'd be blameless and holy and ready when Christ returns to earth as he promised. Four specific prayers, four great prayers to pray for the Thessalonians, and three of them we can most certainly imitate when we pray for our children and for anyone else. How wonderful it would be if all of us at St. Michael's were to pray faithfully and constantly for each other like that. What a strengthening it would mean for the church family. Today is Father's Day. It's a huge privilege being a father, but it's not easy being a father in the 21st century, particularly when there are so many calls on our time. But if you are a father, have a think about our four headings for godly leadership. Just as with godly leaders, so godly fathers need to have and show deep affection and love for their children. It's not enough just to feel it. Our children need to hear it, hear us saying it to them. Godly fathers need to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of their children, and that includes being well-taught about real Christianity. That means bringing them regularly to church. We once had an American father here at St. Michael's who said he'd grown up thinking that church and Christianity were for women and children. Why? 
His mother used to take him and his siblings to church. Nothing was ever said about his father's absence, often on the golf, golf course. But that little boy heard the message loud and clear. Christianity is not for men. Yet it's not just church going. It's making sure children are getting to know Jesus and the Bible through children's church and in prayer times, usually at bedtime at home. And of course, godly fathers will pray for their children, that they will grow up as mature adults who know the love and security of Christ personally and are able to follow him faithfully. And if you're a single mother, God can make up the lack of a father for your children because every earthly father is fallible. But God, our heavenly father, makes no mistakes. And in that situation, we can do what we can in terms of prayer and our spiritual, children's spiritual welfare, and God will make it up to them. As we think about this mighty Bible passage, as we see inside the Apostle Paul's heart, if you're in any kind of spiritual leadership, that includes being a parent or a grandparent, here is the challenge. How does your leadership match up to Paul's? How does my leadership match up to Paul's? Let's ask God to help us to be the kind of leaders he intends, and let's see the great joy that will result. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of seeing inside the Apostle Paul's heart his heart of love, of prayer, of teaching and encouragement, of example. And we pray for ourselves and our leadership in whatever form it may take. Particularly today, we pray for fathers. And we pray that you will strengthen us and enable us to be the leaders that you long for us to be and we long to be. Thank you for the help of your Holy Spirit who strengthens and enables us beyond our capacity. Amen.